going to be in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, then 28 through 31, and then 49 through 53. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men, were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside En-Rogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and the royal officials of Judah. And now verses 28 through 31. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. Now we're going to jump to Verses 49 through 53. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went to his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. For behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. It's God's word. You may be seated. Thankful to be with you guys this morning. We're here. This is the end of the road with the life of David. Can you believe it? What a series. I'm really thankful for how the Lord has used it in my own life. I'm, I'm thankful for the testimonies that I've heard of the Lord's work through his word in your own life. Man, what a guy, huh? Last week, Dan uh, walked us through 2 Samuel chapter 24, and that was when David sinfully took a census. And honestly, though, I wished that uh, the story of David's life had ended a couple weeks prior to that, two weeks ago, the last time I spoke with you guys. If you remember where it landed two weeks ago, this was that beautiful twilight ending, the restoration. It, David had been restored to his throne. Remember, he had been on the run from his son Absalom, and now he had been brought back in. And he had his hodgepodge group of followers with him, this ragtag group of people And there they were, all going back into the kingdom. He was going back to the throne. Everything was being restored. He himself, David, was contrite, broken, humbled, ready to live the rest of his days 
in obedience to God. And that, that was supposed to be that beautiful ending, right? Fade to black. That's all she wrote. Alas, that is not the case, was it? Then we had chapter 24 last week. David falls again. Even after all that, he falls again. He turns to sin and he takes that census. And I was just thinking, isn't that the story of our own lives? You, you sin, you make a mistake. God graciously forgives you. There's redemption and restoration through the gospel. And then all too easily right back into sin. Eventually, uh, by the grace of God, David, what we learned last week in chapter 24, is he stepped in as a mediator for the people. There was a crisis, a coming judgment, and the judgment ends because of what David did. And David actually, once the crisis comes to an end, he buys the spot where the judgment came to, came to a stop. And that spot that he bought, the threshing floor, was the very place where the temple would be built. But not yet. Not quite yet. David, God told David it couldn't be him who would build the temple. It would be someone after him. The king who would come after David would be the one that would build the temple. Uh, But that guy wasn't yet king. He hadn't come to the throne. So the curtain, metaphorically speaking, the curtain closes on the end of 1 and 2 Samuel with a little bit of tension, right? Who's going to build build the temple? Who is this king that is to come? And when the curtains open again in 1 Kings 1, which is our passage for today, David is still on the throne, but he's dying. That's where we pick up the story today. But before we dive in, I want us to go back to something that we had talked about at the very, very beginning of this sermon series, something that's really important for us to remember as we're coming to a close. By the, by the time that the original readers had... 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings in their hands, the kingdom looked very different than what it did during the time of David. The kingdom was divided. The temple that Solomon did eventually build was destroyed. They lived in exile, and they were ruled by a foreign power. At that time, to those people, when they were reading this book, it would seem to them that every promise of God the ones we were just singing about, the ones that Nate was pointing us to, every promise of God had failed. David and his reign, that was like a bygone memory, like a little blip on the screen where the trajectory always leads to pain and suffering and death. I bring that up to remind you that First and Second Samuel and on into the to First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles, it's written to people and for people then, people then, and to people now, facing obstacles, trials, depression, dark days. Some of it they brought on themselves by their own sin. Some of it, some of it had been done to them, but in all of it, it would be very easy to feel abandoned or forgotten, or even hopeless despair. They would wonder, well, where is God? Where are you? Did you forget us? What about your promises? And the answer of First and Second Samuel to those questions, as we've witnessed in David's life over and over again, is that the Lord keeps his promises to his people. 
He keeps them to David. He keeps them to his people. He keeps them to us today, right here, right now. No matter how things look around us, he is a covenant-keeping God, able to do what he says. But, but, the most remarkable thing about that great truth, and David's life witnesses to this as well, is that he keeps his promises to sinners. Not just people who listen to him or obey him or make him look good. Not just those who please him and talk good about him to other people. God keeps his promises to people who profane him, who disregard his loving direction, who are unfaithful, and who again and again turn away from him. This passage right here that we're going to look at today tells us how the kingdom passes from David to his son Solomon. But this passage ultimately points to a gracious God who always keeps his promises. Let's just ask the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. Lord, if you are for us, who can be against us? Your promises give us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. Oh, Lord, open all of our eyes to behold this day your precious and very great promises to us. Speak, Lord. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's pick up the story, okay? First Kings chapter 1. Adonijah... Another one of David's great sons. That's sarcastic. You can go back and read the other ones if you don't know what I'm talking about. Adonijah tries to steal the throne. Let me read verses 5 and 6 for us again from 1 Kings chapter 1. Now Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man. He was born next after Absalom. In verses 1 to 4, what we learn is that David is getting old. He's near the point of death. Adonijah, this son of David, was waiting for that. With his father seemingly too old to act, he took the throne for himself. And this text says that Adonijah exalted himself. That is a scary statement. Only God exalts someone especially a king in Israel. The fact is, Adonijah should have been taught that by his father. He should have known that. He should have known better than to exalt himself. David waited so very patiently on God to exalt him. Do you remember that? The wilderness wanderings, waiting for God to remove Saul and put him in. He never took it into his own hands. Just as a little aside here, thinking about David and his relationship to his sons one more time. It is so important to pass along what we have learned to the next generation. Yes, I'm talking about fathers and mothers to sons and daughters, but I'm specifically thinking in terms of spiritual mothers and fathers to spiritual sons and daughters. Think about about Paul's relationship to Timothy in the New Testament. He, He, Paul, passed down his teaching, both by his example, the way that he lived his life, and what he taught to Timothy. And he expected Timothy to go and do the exact same thing. That's the call for us. If you trust in Christ, that's the call for you to pass down what you have been taught 
to the next generation. To if you have biological children, if you have children of your own, you pass it down to them, but specifically to spiritual children, to other people who will do the same to others. David, as we've already seen several times, shirks this responsibility. He doesn't pass down. He doesn't engage his kids. He's passive. Adonijah, who not only looks like David's traitorous son, Absalom, also gets soldiers and chariots and horses like Absalom and then launches this takeover. And it's on. The takeover is on. But that's when David's friends take action. Nathan, whose name you have heard before if you've been tracking with the life of David, he's the faithful prophet to David throughout his life. And Bathsheba, who's now his wife, they recognize what's happening and they hatch a plan. They would, they talked and they synchronized their visits to King David. Try to get him to respond. Even though he's old now, they want him to respond to Adonijah's treason. Bathsheba went in first and she told the king about what Adonijah was doing. And then Nathan followed up right away and confirmed everything that Bathsheba had said. And Nathan closes with this question. This is verse 27, uh, 1 Kings 1. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my, of my lord the king after him? Nathan's, Nathan's asking a question, did, did this happen and I didn't know about it? The answer to the question is, of course not. Of course not. But they knew that David, Nathan knew, when he's asking the question, that David is passive. And he didn't take responsibility like he ought. And so they needed to come up with this elaborate plan to get him to move. They wanted to make sure that he was going to keep his promise to make Solomon king. But what about that promise? Did David actually make that promise? In verses 29 and 30, it shows that he remembers making the promise. In 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 22, he references this, this particular promise. I'll just read it to you. So this is from First Chronicles chapter 22, verses 9 and 10. But the word of the Lord came to David, saying, Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. There it is. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. God told David, David promised it would happen, and now David's friends appeal to him to make sure that promise happens. So David then responds. He keeps his promise. He calls in the right people, the people that uh, not only have the authority, but they have the right character. Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaniah, the warrior, prophet, priest, warrior, all gathered together, and he tells them to put Solomon on his ride, on the donkey, take him to a public place, it was a fountain outside of Jerusalem, and there the prophet and the priest would anoint Solomon as king, and they would shout, long live King Solomon! It was a formal ceremony. And finally, when it was done, they would come back, Solomon would sit on the throne, and that's exactly what they did. They got a big group, put Solomon on the donkey, let him down, anointed him, shouted the shouts, and it was so loud, such a big group, so much commotion, that it says this in verse 40, all the people went up after him, that is Solomon, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. 
That's loud. It was so loud that Adonijah, who was wrapping up his, his kickoff party, enjoying the praise of all the people and probably dreaming about how he was going to use the palace for himself, suddenly heard this great earth-shattering noise. And Joab, this old warrior of David's, asks Adonijah and everyone gathered there a pretty ominous question. He says, what does this uproar in the city mean? Yeah, what does it mean? Adonijah's guests quickly find out that the noise is their nightmare. David had chosen a king, and it wasn't Adonijah, it was Solomon. Adonijah's guests trembled, and they scattered, they ran for their lives. Adonijah ran to the place where he figured Solomon would surely not come and kill him, the altar where worship of God took place. Solomon heard about this, and he wisely chose a path of peace. And After all, that's what his name means. Solomon means it's related to shalom or peace. Solomon let his treasonous brother live with the provision that he changed his dishonorable ways and pledge allegiance to Solomon as king. And that's what Adonijah did. And so this chapter comes to a close with David at rest. Solomon on the throne, the kingdom secured. So, before we fade to black on this little happy ending, I want to look back at how this happened. What happened here? Really, I I think it hinged all on one key moment. The shocking, unexpected moment David kept his promise. Adonijah tried to snatch that kingdom. Nathan and Bathsheba pressed into David. But in the end, it came down to David staying faithful to his word. Once that happened, everything else fell into place. It's so shocking, though. Why did I say shocking and unexpected? It's so shocking because David seemed to always do the wrong thing when it came to his kids. But by the grace of God, he makes one final decision, setting the kingdom on a pathway to peace. So let's just go back to that section real quick. Let's reread the promise that David keeps one more time. I'm looking at 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, and David is, again, just talking to Bathsheba here. He's responding to her. Verse 29, And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Here's the key question that I want to answer with our remaining time together. Why does David keep his promise? Or another way I could ask the same question, what fuels David's promise keeping? And here's the, I'm going to answer the question and then let's unpack it a little bit. Here's the answer. David kept his promise because it's right there in the text. First, the Lord lives. And second, the Lord redeemed his soul out of every adversity. So let's unpack those two. First, the Lord lives. The phrase, as the Lord lives, which is what David said, is common in the Bible. It basically means, of course this is going to happen. The modern day equivalent of that would be, just as an example, I asked my son, um, son, will you go mow the lawn today? 
And my son replies, well, is the sky blue? And the meaning is, of course I will. Of course I'm going to go do that. It's obvious. But David used this phrase relationally when he said, the Lord lives. He used it several times throughout his life. He knew that God lives. Listen to what David says in other places. So this is going back to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is just before he defeated the giant Goliath. He says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? And then later on he says, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Or later on, when he was on the run from Saul, he said this in 1 Samuel chapter 26, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord lives. The Lord will act here. And then finally, from 2 Samuel chapter 22, these are some of his final words. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. What's going on here? Whether he, whether he's fighting a ferocious enemy, or he's trusting in God's plan with his ascension to the throne, or he's looking over the course of his many ups and downs in his life, David knows that God is really there. God has been at work time and time again. Brothers and sisters, hear me today. The Lord lives. That's a good time for an amen. The Lord lives. Yeah, he's not dead. He's here. He's present. He's with us. He's working. He's moving. He's doing what he said he would do. Amen. The same God that carried David through his best days and his worst days is the same God that will carry you through your best days and your worst days. How different our lives would look if we knew day by day, moment by moment, that the Lord lives. He is here. He is with us. Remember that. He's here. He's near. He's at work. Second, David says he's going to keep the promise because God has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. It's verse 30. What adversity? Well, enough to fill up like eight movies worth of adversity, right? Adversity from the outside, adversity from the inside. Adversity from the outside, like bears or lions as a young boy, a giant named Goliath, a murderous king named Saul, and his henchmen, like Doeg the Edomite, wars upon wars, running in the wilderness for his life. And then there's adversity from the inside, his hot temper that could have easily destroyed entire cities if he wasn't held back by Abigail, his sinful taking of Bathsheba, his own sons, the rapist Amnon, the traitor Absalom, the opportunistic Adonijah, and especially, especially his own sin that again and again brings destruction and judgment on Israel. Adversity from outside, adversity from the inside, but God has redeemed him. What does that mean? That God has redeemed David's soul. Did you see that? He said, who has redeemed my soul? Redemption actually is something that runs in David's family. David's great-grandpa and David's great-grandma are, many of you already know this, are Boaz and Ruth. Ruth, you can go back and read this story, it's beautiful. 
Ruth was not an Israelite. She came from Israel's ancient enemy, Moab. She married an Israelite man, but her husband suddenly died. She had a choice to make. Would she choose to live a life of relative security by returning to her homeland, her home people, or would she choose God and his ways despite the hardship that would come from it? She chose to remain loyal. Boaz, a righteous man, saw this, and he responded. He redeemed Ruth. At great cost to himself, Boaz brings her out of a difficult situation, and he brings her into a place of great blessing. David's family knows the power and the beauty and the blessing of redemption out of adversity. adversity. David's adversity, remember, was brought on by inside and outside forces. Some of it was his fault, some of it wasn't, but most of it was. But here we see David with battle scars on his body, aches and pains from the years in the wilderness, heaviness in his heart from the poor poor choices that he's made in life and in love, tears in his eyes from son after son that rejected him and died. And we see David with joy in his heart over a God who never left him, peace knowing that God established his reign, an overflowing cup of blessing because God put away his sin. We see David here praising God as the one who has redeemed him out of every adversity. I don't know what you have done or what's been done to you, but David's life testifies to us. You are loved. We are loved by a redeeming God. He's a God who will redeem your very soul no matter what you've done. He has the power to redeem you, and he did it by sending Jesus. Jesus redeemed us. He redeemed us from sin into righteousness. He redeemed us from darkness into his marvelous light. He redeemed us from life without purpose or meaning into a life of eternal meaning. He redeemed us from having no identity or home into his family, and into his home. He redeemed us from death into everlasting life. And he did it all by dying for us, by paying that redemption price for us on the cross. What a wonderful redemption we have, a miraculous redemption we have. That is why hymn writers sing songs like, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. This has been particularly precious to me over these last couple weeks. I would love to bring you into that. We don't have time right now. It's precious because I know that I'm not lost. I'm not defined or abandoned by by God because of my sin. That God redeems my soul is my great hope. Apart from this, my life is lost, yet I am not lost because of him. David knew God keeps his promises. He had seen God redeem him again and again and again. And David could say, as he neared death, God has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. 
so. Ultimately, what we see here in this passage is that David keeps the promise to Solomon to put Solomon on the throne because God kept his promises to David. God is a promise-keeping God. That is so important for us to know, to know that God keeps his promises. And so in light of that, I just want to close with a couple, a couple applications. God keeps his promises. So, brothers and sisters, know the promises of God. Know his precious promises. Second Peter 1 says this, that God has granted to us his precious and very great promises. They are precious and they are very great. You will not know the promises of God unless you read the word of God. May that drive you to his word. Precious promises await you there. Very great promises await you there. They are a treasure to be sought. Know the promises of God. God keeps his promises. So remember that he will not leave you or forsake you. He is not dead. He is alive. He is with you. God keeps his promises. So praise him that he will redeem your soul out of every adversity, everything, everything done to you and everything that you do, especially the adversity of your sin and eternal death. He will redeem you from that. God keeps his promises. So in light of what God does and who he is, we must be like our Heavenly Father and keep our promises too. Letting our yes be yes and our no be no. But when you don't, when you don't keep your promises, when you, like David, fail to keep your promises, you fall upon God's merciful promises again, like David did at the end of 2 Samuel when he said this, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. When the temple was finally completed, Solomon prayed this prayer in dedication over the temple. He said these words, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. Not one word has failed. God's great mercy and the proof that his promises do not fail meet at the cross. When the son of David, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave his life for us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. By faith in Jesus we have been brought Everyone who trusts in Christ has been brought into every promise God made for his people. Because of Jesus, the answer to every one of God's promises for you is yes. Trust in this great king with all your heart. Not one word has failed of all his good promises. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that every promise finds its yes in you.
Thank you, Jesus, that you have brought us into the promises of God. Thank you, God, that you are a faithful God, that what you say you will do. Thank you that you are the living God, that you are here, you are near, you are at work. Thank you that you have promised that you will deliver us out of every adversity. And Lord, we long for the day when faith will be sight, when the sky will be rolled back with like a scroll, the trump will resound, and the Lord will descend. And even in this moment, Lord, we say it is well with our soul. It is well with our soul. Your promises are precious and very great to us today. Seal them to us by your Spirit. Empower us to know them, to believe them. In Jesus' name, amen.